Hello, this is Curtis Hill for the Pro for uh, Unity Project, and glad to be here. We have a uh, United States Congressman from the state of Florida, Byron Donalds. And, uh, How you doing? Uh, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's cool. This is going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about what got you motivated to run for Congress. Oh, man, that's a long story. I mean, look, the short version is I was a regular citizen. I was in finance. That's my career. So I was in finance. I remember watching uh, House Financial Services during the 08 financial collapse. Mm -hmm. And so many of the members didn't know what they were talking about. And it was frustrating to me because I was 29. I'm just, you know, doing what everybody said, told me to do. Work hard, get a job, take care of your family. I'm doing all that. And then when the economy implodes, the leaders didn't even know what was going on. and had no clue, didn't understand it. And I'm somebody on the front lines, I completely understood what happened. So that really, you know, got me upset, got me engaged in politics for the first time in my life. And then people in my community, as I started, like, you know, getting involved locally, they asked me to run. And that was back in 2012, first time I ran, lost that race. It was a great experience. I learned a lot about myself. And I uh, went to the state legislature in 16, served there for four years. And then when the seat came open again in 2020, ran again. Now, do you find a great deal of difference between your role as a state uh, state rep uh, versus a Congress? Uh, they're very different. Very, very different. The issues are different. Although, you know, I think a lot of people think they're the same issues. Um, and so sometimes, you know, even now when I'm meeting with people and they're talking to me about an issue, I'm trying to ascertain, well, is this a federal issue or is this a state issue? And I think that's the biggest thing you got to figure out all the time to help point people in the right direction. But some of the skill sets are consistent. Uh, legislative chambers are what they are. They don't, they don't really, you know, they, the dynamics kind of don't change. It's just what you deal with changes. Do you find it amazing the number of either state legislators or congressmen who don't read the bills? No. Unfortunately, it's a large number, and no, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I, I know that uh, having dealt with the, the folks that I've dealt with, it's, it's, yeah. it's sort of shocking that, as you say, these are folks who are representing the, uh, the people on various issues and various matters, and sometimes they don't even know beyond what their aides tell them the bill reflects. Well, I would say at the state level is, I mean, I've read bills at the state level, really no excuse. Typically at the state level it's more organized. You kind of get a week to look through the yeah. material. Um, and then there's a bunch of analysis that goes with it. And so reading the bill to get super technical, the bill is legislative language. And it refers to a bunch of different sections. There's like a couple of key sentences that matter. Sure. But if you have that also with like kind of a condensed version of what specifically, what lines do want, then you can kind of get through the bill and it makes sense. At the federal level, it's just a complete disaster of scheduling. There will be bills that are dropped five hours before we're supposed to vote on them, 10 hours before we're supposed to vote on them. Nobody has the time to read them. And this is actually what Nancy Pelosi has done to the House of Representatives. So one of the big things that we're pushing, that a lot of members are pushing for, is, you know, giving the members 72 hours. Give them three days to actually, you know, read the bill. Yeah. Give me an opportunity to read it. Give the opportunity for me and my staff to work through the bill. We can sit around, people can take sections of the bill, read through it, understand it, and go from there. Tell me about your district, uh, the makeup and uh, the people that you represent. Uh, what kind of issues are, are hot for them? Well, I mean, I represent Naples, Florida, Marco Island, Florida, Fort Myers, Florida. So we were we were the area of the country that just got hit by Hurricane Ian. Uh, so right now, the big issue is just rebuilding. Uh, and we're going to do that. It's just going to take some time, but we're going to rebuild. Most of my district is actually back on its feet. 
already. You know, our airport's open. Most people are back to life. Our, our barrier islands are, are going to take some time to rebuild. They, they were damaged really, really badly. Um, in normal times, it's um, for my district, it's Everglades restoration, water policy. Because obviously, we're a coastal area. Water and the environment is important to us. Uh, we want to make sure that it's there and it's consistent with what we the way we found it mm-hmm. and what we leave after we're gone. But then after that, my, my voters, my constituents, they largely just want to be left alone. They, they want the federal government to do its job and do no more. And here at the Unity Project, we're talking about medical freedom right. and parental mm-hmm. rights. Um, I would imagine that, that that's a uh, uh, pretty much a standard cry in your community. Oh, it absolutely is. It really, really is. I think that, look, parents want to be engaged in their child's life. It's actually more unlikely for a parent to not want to be engaged. But if you listen to the left, they would say, oh, parents don't want to do this work. That's not true. Parents want to be engaged in that. And in terms of medical rights and medical freedom, you know, last time I checked, we have HIPAA laws in the United States where what you do with your own medical history is yours and nobody else's business. And somehow during the pandemic, that completely was turned on its head where your privacy to make your own decisions about your medical uh, well-being is now for public consumption. I thought that, I found that to be outrageous. But it was for our own good. No, 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 no. That's what they told us. They told us it was for our own good, that, 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 that there's a crisis out there and the government's going to step in and say, we're going to make these decisions for you. I mean, isn't that what we're hearing at the congressional level? Yeah, that's what they would say, but it's not true. Absolutely. Um, listen, what I've always found, and that's not just here, but it's any government in history of the world. There's always going to be those who will tell you they're doing everything for your own interests. Just suspend your own thinking and give it to us, and we'll take it from there. And what that has always led to is the despotism of people every single time. And so the question I have from my colleagues on the other side of the aisle isn't that I don't trust you. It's that it's not your job. It's just not your job. It's not your authority set. That's not what you were empowered to do. Article 1, Section 8 empowers Congress to do certain things. But the left is so good at exploiting cultural issues and cultural differences. Where does that come from? Because the, the, the power of their arguments are based on emotion, not fact, not logic, not morality, emotion. Let's take abortion, all right? It is by far the most divisive and emotional topic in our politics. And difficult topic. It's a hard topic. Um, it's hard for the women who have to go through that decision. It's hard for them after they've made that decision. It's very personal. So instead of saying, you know what, we think this is an issue that belongs to state governments, where citizens can work with their state representatives and their state senators and their governor to figure out what the policy is, the left says no. Only five justices in black robes should decide for everybody. But you're dealing with a a situation that's highly personal, highly emotional, but you're going to give it to five justices in black robes. And if they don't get to have their way that way, then everybody else is a scourge on freedom. Mm -hmm. The logic makes no sense, but it is an emotional topic. And so what they hold to are the emotions of an issue. I see it on Capitol Hill all the time. We'll have debates with with my colleagues, other side of the aisle, their debates make no sense, well, but they, they are emotions-based. And they also interject emotionally the issue of race. Into, All the time. Into, into every issue. I call it the weaponization of race. I didn't coin that. Everybody goes. But, but that weaponization yeah. of race, it's, 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 if you can make it about black, they won't fight back. 
they've yep. got people so discouraged from being able to speak up on issues of race. And again, to your point, it's based on emotion. So I was, we just had a hearing and oversight committee this last week. And so one of my colleagues, I think it was Corey Bush out of Missouri, I wasn't in the room, but she said that all the Republicans were white supremacists. So when I got to the floor, some of the Republican members who were on the committee were like, Byron, did you know that she, that, that she, do you know that you're a white supremacist? I was like, oh, that's, that's news to me. I had no idea. I would imagine you like black people. Uh, kind of, yeah. yeah. I kind of like them. Me too. We're great. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, it go, but again, if you can get people caught up in an emotional argument with no basis of fact, but just pure emotion, unfortunately, emotional arguments do, do win in politics. And so it's the job of Republicans, it's job, my job, frankly, to not run from the battle, but to engage it and demonstrate why it's ridiculous and makes no sense. I'll give you a better one. I testified in the Senate Banking Committee. They asked me to come over and talk about, the topic was um, um, disparate, uh, disparate impacts in banking, which is the new code phrase for racism in banking. Mm -hmm. So I'm there as one of the Republican witnesses there was only one Republican senator that showed up at the Senate Banking Committee. So I'm there listening to Elizabeth Warren, Chris Van Hollen, all these people coming through, giving their talking points, not asking me questions. They're just giving, spewing their stuff, spewing the race baiting, spewing the emotion. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm more mad at Senate Republicans because I'm like, why aren't you here engaging in this, in this battle? Why are you leaving? But they left because, if you, like, well, to your point, if you make it about black, then people run for the hills. They don't want to engage in that argument, even though it's wrong, even though it's a lie. They don't want to engage the battle. They don't want the risk of, of saying the wrong thing or having it used against them, instead of standing up and saying what's right. Hey, listen, the old saying it was the old saying, you know, no risk it, no biscuit. If you want, if you want to win, you got to put something up. You got to put yourself into the fray if you want to win. And so, and I know that the purpose of your organization, medical freedom, parental rights, you're not going to have that if you have elected officials who are afraid of being castigated, labeled, banned, blacklisted, made fun of, or potentially lose their seat. It requires them and the women to engage in that battle. You got to engage. You got to be willing. In order to win, you got to be willing to lose. Well, I appreciate your time today, sir. I appreciate you coming on board. Anytime. And we'll do it again sometime. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you so much. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the Donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.